Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shear, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, it's a departure from the norm. In case you missed it in the title, we're covering perhaps one of the most famous kings in history, King Arthur. Wait, you might be thinking, King Arthur was a real person? Well, no. When I started this show, I wanted to strictly cover actual historic figures. Otherwise, I'd be able to do thousands of more episodes over people like, I don't know, Daenerys Targaryen. Are we still allowed to talk about Game of Thrones? By the way, bad ruler. She crucified people and lined them up on the roadside. They were slave owners, so they deserved it. But then she also burned down a city. Oh, a uh, spoiler alert, I guess. While you may know by now that I like history, you might not realize that I love Arthurian lore even more. So that's why I'm breaking my fictional character rule. Kind of. You see, there's a belief I have that most legends are backed up by some truth. And when it comes to King Arthur, I'm not the only one who feels this way. There have been theories for ages over who this legendary king may have been based on. And for the record, there is no consensus over who was the actual historical King Arthur, if King Arthur actually existed in any capacity. In fact, most of the names tossed around are usually considered not to be the basis for Arthur by a majority of historians. Nonetheless, it's still interesting to see how people will make connections between different historical figures and the King of Camelot himself. I'll probably do several episodes over the possible history of King Arthur, each time also covering one of the several figures people have formed theories around. But what else should you expect in this episode? Well, first we need to establish who King Arthur was in the legendary capacity. Next, we need to lay the groundwork by learning about what the King of the Britons was like during his potential time of rule. By the way, that's Britain spelled B-R-I-T-O-N, not B-R-I-T-A-I-N. You'll learn the difference soon enough. And finally, we'll learn about a man who some have claimed as the basis for Arthur. In this episode, I'll introduce you to someone named Lucius Artorius Castus. So, without further ado, let's take a jump, not into history, but into the legends of King Arthur Pendragon in A Tale of Two Arthurs. The following is an excerpt from Le Morte d'Arthur. By Thomas Mallory. Then stood the realm in great jeopardy long while, for every lord that was mighty of men made him strong, and many weened to have been king. Then Merlin went to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and counseled him for to send for all the lords of the realm, and all the gentlemen of arms, that they should to London come by Christmas, upon pain of cursing. And for this time that Jesus that was born on that night, that he would of his great mercy show some miracle, as he was come to be king of mankind, for to show some miracle who should rightwise king of this realm. So the archbishop, by the advice of Merlin, sent for all the lords and gentlemen of arms, that they should come by Christmas even unto London. And many of them made them clean of their life, that their prayer might be the more acceptable unto God. So in the greatest church of London, whether it were Paul's or not the French book maketh no mention. All the estates were long or day in the church were to pray, and when matins and the first mass was done, there was seen in the churchyard against the high altar a great stone four square like unto a marble stone, 
and in midst thereof was like an anvil of steel a foot on high, and therein stuck a fair sword naked by the point, and letters that were written in gold about the sword that said thus, Whoso pulleth out this sword of this stone and anvil is rightwise king born of all England. And upon New Year's Day, the barons let make a jousts and a tournament, that all knights that would joust or tourney there might play. And all this was ordained for to keep the lords together and the commons, for the archbishop trusted that God would make him known that should win the sword. So upon New Year's Day, when the service was done, the barons rode unto the field, some to joust and some to tourney. And so it happened that Sir Ector, that had great livelihood about London, rode unto the jousts. With him rode Sir Kay his son, and young Arthur, that was his nourished brother. And Sir Kay was made knight at All Hallowmass afore. So as they rode to the jousts word, Sir Kay lost his sword, for he had left it at his father's lodging. And so he prayed young Arthur for to ride for his sword. I will well, said Arthur, and rode fast after the sword. And when he came home, the lady and all were out to see the jousting. Then was Arthur wroth, and said to himself, I will ride to the churchyard, and take the sword with me that sticketh in the stone, for my brother Sir Kay shall not be without a sword this day. So when he came to the churchyard, Sir Arthur alighted and tied his horse to the stile. And so he went to the tent, and found no knights there, for they were at the jousting. And so he handled the sword by the handles, and lightly and fiercely pulled it out of the stone, and took his horse, and rode all the way until he came to his brother Sir Kay, and delivered him the sword. And as soon as Sir Kay saw the sword, he wist well it was the sword of the stone, and so he rode to his father Sir Ector, and said, Sir, lo here is the sword of the stone, wherefore I must be king of this land. When Sir Ector beheld the sword, he returned again and came to the church, and there they alighted, all three, and went into the church. And anon he made Sir Kay swear upon a book how he came to that sword. Sir, said Sir Kay, by my brother Arthur, for he brought it to me. How get ye this sword? said Sir Ector to Arthur. Sir, I will tell you, when I came home for my brother's sword, and I found nobody at home to deliver me his sword, and so I thought my brother Sir Kay should not be swordless, and so I came hither eagerly and pulled it out of the stone without any pain. Now, said Sir Ector to Arthur, I understand ye must be king of this land. Wherefore I, said Arthur, and for what cause? Sir, said Ector, for God will have it so, for there should never be man have drawn out this sword, but he that shall be rightwise king of this land. Before we actually start talking about King Arthur, let's talk about the land he was said to rule. Arthur was king of the Britons, and now I'm going to explain the difference between Britain with an O-N and Britain with an A-I-N. Britain, A-I-N and short for Great Britain, is the name of the island on which England, Scotland, and Wales are situated. It is also used as a shorter name for the UK, which is Great Britain and Northern Ireland. The name Britain comes from the Latin Britannia, the Roman name for the island because it was home of the Britons, that's Britain with an O-N. 
The Britons were the native Celtic people of southern Great Britain, inhabiting the land that would become England and Wales. During the time period in which Arthur is generally claimed to have ruled sometime in the late 5th century or early 6th century, Britain had recently seen the departure of the Roman Empire due to its collapse. There's a lot of information that I'm going to skip over on that subject, because the fall of Rome will definitely be covered at some point in the future. Anyways, the imperial troops left Britain around the year 410, leaving the island to fend for itself. Without a central ruling party under the Romans, the Britons and remaining Roman citizens fractured the nation into smaller kingdoms, and we think several civil wars broke out during this time period. That's when we see the arrival of several Germanic cultures, who we all put under the umbrella term Anglo-Saxons. While there had probably already been some Saxon mercenaries in Britain during Roman rule, these new groups came in as raiding parties. With the Britons disconnected from each other, the Anglo-Saxon raiders began doing what raiders do best. Some of our main historical texts about this time period come from a monk named Gildas, who was writing about these events a century later. According to Gildas, the kingdoms came together in a council led by the legendary figure Vortigern in order to figure out how to deal with this new threat. By the way, Vortigern was probably not this king's actual name, and also he would later be added into Arthurian legend. Vortigern's solution was to hire Saxon mercenaries to take on the threat of their countrymen. Unfortunately for Vortigern and his grand plan, these mercenaries ended up betraying the Britons and began sacking British towns. Go figure. A series of conflicts broke out between the Britons and the Anglo-Saxon invaders. The fighting culminated in the Battle of Mons Badonicus. The Britons managed to defeat the invaders in the battle and bring about a period of peace. But the fight did not completely repel the Germanic forces. Britain was split in half, with the native Britons living in western England and Wales, and the Anglo-Saxons occupying eastern England. However, the Battle of Mons Badonicus is also famous for the supposed involvement of King Arthur. Now, the historical texts stating this weren't written until nearly 400 years after Arthur's supposed rule, but Arthurian scholars who want him to be real most definitely use this as an argument for him being a historical figure. So that is the Britain in which we find Arthur's rule, a land torn apart after the departure of a powerful empire, which by this point itself is also torn apart, and then further ravaged by invading forces. The Battle of Mons Badonicus was proof, though, that not all hope was lost for the Britons, at least at this point in time. Spoiler alert, the Britons don't get the last hurrah. The Anglo-Saxons completely took over England, leaving the Britons to eventually become the Welsh and the Celtic people of northwest France and Brittany. But still, in that moment of history, it is not surprising to think that the Britons would create a hero for themselves, the man ordained by God himself to protect their culture from the invasion of the Saxon hordes. Now that we have an idea of the Briton King Arthur was said to rule, let's dig a little deeper into the man himself. You probably have an idea in your head of who King Arthur is. He pulls out the sword from the stone, has a wizard named Merlin, and the Knights of the Round Table. 
maybe you also know about his illegitimate son Mordred and Morgan Le Fay. There are many, many stories about King Arthur that have been told throughout the millennia and a half since he was first written about. But because there are so many stories, it becomes very difficult to honestly answer, who was King Arthur? The version we know of today, magical swords and wizards aside, would be completely anachronistic in 5th century post-Roman Britain. Heck, the concept of knights didn't exist until nearly three centuries later under Charlemagne. King Arthur started out as a folk hero of the Celtic Britons, but then he was reinvented in the 12th century by British cleric Geoffrey of Monmouth as a more Anglo-Saxon British archetypal hero. He was then transformed again throughout the next two centuries by the French, particularly Cretan de Troyes, into a figure we would find much more familiar. This version of Arthur would find his ultimate form in the late medieval work Le Mort d'Arthur by Thomas Mallory, the same book I read from earlier. The short version of that is there is no canonical Arthur Pendragon as far as scholarly studies go. If you ask me, I would say Mallory's book is canon Arthur because it's the most famous and thorough, so I'll be using that for a general basis of who Arthur was. Arthur was born to King Uther Pendragon and his wife, Queen Egraine. When he was a baby, Uther sensed that trouble was coming for his family, so he sent Arthur away to be raised in secret by one of his knights. Fast forward to Arthur as a young teenager. Uther and Egraine are dead, and Britain is in dire need of a new king. Luckily, Uther's friend and court wizard Merlin comes up with a plan, even though Merlin knew who Arthur was and exactly where to find him. Enter the sword in the stone. And no, the sword in the stone is not Excalibur, despite some media wrongly depicting that. The sword is enchanted with the same magic as Thor's hammer Mjolnir. Only he who be worthy of king can pull the sword from the stone. As we know, Arthur pulls the sword from the stone and has crowned the true king of Britain. Things go south almost immediately when a bunch of minor kings around Britain decide they don't want to serve a teenager, which… fair. Nonetheless, Arthur manages to defeat the army of minor kings and along the way sleeps with his sister, yikes, but he doesn't yet know she's his sister. He also marries Guinevere around this time, and her father gifts Arthur the round table. Merlin then delivers a prophecy to Arthur that a recently born child will eventually grow up and kill him. This child is Mordred, the son sired after Arthur slept with his sister, who at this point Arthur has only just found out is his sister. Anyway, Merlin comes up with the grand plan to kill a bunch of babies, and Arthur agrees that this is just the greatest of plans, so they kill a bunch of babies. But. Mordred survives. Fast forward a bit and Arthur receives Excalibur from the Lady in the Lake, a magical woman who lives in a lake. Pretty self-explanatory. He goes on to have many great kingly adventures with his knights. Britain starts going through some rough times, so Arthur sends out his knights to find the Holy Grail so that Britain can be saved. That lasts for a very long time. During all of this, Arthur's best friend and best knight Lancelot is sleeping with Queen Guinevere. Mordred, now all grown up and a knight of the round table, and his brother Agravain 
find out and set up a plan to tell Arthur about all this while taking down Lancelot. They fail to capture Lancelot, who flees to his homeland of France. Oh yeah, Lancelot is French by the way. Arthur leads a campaign to take down his old friend, but he leaves Mordred in charge of England while he's gone. Arthur ends up letting Lancelot live because he finds out Mordred has led a coup against Arthur's rule, and he's also trying to marry Guinevere. Arthur hurries back to Britain to fight his illegitimate son. They meet each other at the Battle of Camlin, where the father and son end up striking each other down. Mordred dies in the battle, but Arthur manages to survive a bit longer. Knowing he is to die, he gives Excalibur to his trusted knight Sir Bedivere to return to the Lady of the Lake. Once the sword is returned, Arthur passes away. In some stories, his body is brought to Avalon, a magical fairyland where it is said his body is being healed of all its wounds and he will come back in Britain's greatest hour of need. And that is the very heavily edited down story of King Arthur's life. There are many other stories about him that could be told, but I may save some of those for other episodes I do over historical candidates for King Arthur. Speaking of which, it's about time we learned some legit history on this show. We're going to tick back the clock to the second century to learn all about a Roman commander named Lucius Artorius Castus. Now, you may have several questions before we actually get into things. One might be, if King Arthur supposedly reigned in the 5th century, why are we talking about a 2nd century Roman? To answer that, no one actually thinks King Arthur and Lucius Artorius Castus, who from now on I'll just call Artorius, were the same person. All the theories come down to Artorius being the basis for Arthur. I'll get into that after we learn a little bit about him. Also, if you didn't listen to the Julio-Claudian episode or need a quick reminder, Arturius was his family name. Castus is a cognomen, a fancy nickname tacked onto the end of a Roman name. Something I didn't mention in the previous episode is that these cognomens sometimes just become hereditary, like Julius Caesar, full name Gaius Julius Caesar, was also the son of Gaius Julius Caesar. But Caesar isn't really part of this episode, so moving on. We know very little about Arturius's life. In fact, we know so little that there's not even an agreement on when he lived. We have no birth date or death date. All we have is his tomb that lists all of his military accomplishments, of which there are many. However, because Rome was a land of eternal conquest and war, it's impossible to say Arturius probably fought in this war because we think he lived in this year and was in that country at that time. So because of these inconsistencies, people have thrown out dates anywhere between the years 160 and 220. And finally, before I get any further, this is mostly just going to be a list of the many places Arturius served in the military. However, you'll also learn a bit about the hierarchy of the Roman military because Arturius held a lot of different ranks in the army. The first title on Arturius's tomb is Centurion in the Third Legion Gallica. So right off the bat, I'm gonna explain two things. What is a Centurion and what is a Legion? A legion is the largest military unit of the Roman army. 
there were several thousand infantry soldiers, aka your basic soldier on foot, per legion, along with a few hundred cavalry members, aka the soldiers on horses. A centurion was a basic commander unit within a legion who led a sentry. Guess how many infantry members were in a sentry? That's right, 80. Yep, makes no sense to me either. Unless you were well-connected politically, it usually took a soldier somewhere between 15 and 20 years to become a centurion. You had to be at least 17 to become a soldier in Rome. So if Arturius started immediately at 17 and took a minimal amount of time to become a centurion, he was probably in his mid-30s when serving in the 3rd Legion Gallica, which, during the 2nd and 3rd century, was stationed in Syria. What did he do there? We don't know, so moving on. After Syria, Arturius was a centurion in the 4th Legion Ferrara in Roman Judea. This legion had been created by Caesar, as had the 3rd Legion Gallica, but then fell under the command of Mark Antony, and then into the hands of Octavian, where it continued as part of his imperial army after he became Emperor Augustus. The Roman province of Judea, also called Syria-Palestina, covered much of the land of modern-day Israel and Palestine. It is probably best known as the setting for most of the events of the New Testament in the Bible. After the 4th Legion in Judea, Arturius was shipped off to the 2nd Legion at Eotrix in Aquincum, what is present-day Budapest in Hungary, where he was once again a centurion. Here he probably took part in campaigns against Germanic tribes as well as campaigns against the Parthians, an empire out of Iran. We finally find Arturius gaining ranks once he joins the 5th Legion Macedonica. He originally joined this legion as a centurion, but eventually was promoted to the position of Primus Pilus, a name meaning first spear. This position was specifically for senior centurions, who were given charge of about 10 centuries or 800 soldiers. This legion was stationed in the province of Roman Dacia, most of which is part of present-day Romania. At the very least, we can get a bit of historical timing with this part of Arturius' life because the 5th legion changed its name to Pia Fidelis in 185. Because his tomb specifically notes the 5th legion and not Pia Fidelis, we know he was here before 185. After Roman Dacia, Arturius took to the sea where he served as provost of the Mycenaeum fleet, the senior fleet of the Roman navy. After serving on the high seas, though probably just the Mediterranean if we're being honest, Arturius finally gets back to dry land. Where does he finally get to place his feet? The land of King Arthur himself, the Roman province of Britain. In Britain, Arturius served in the 6th Legion Victrix. The headquarters of this legion was in modern-day York, England. Here, our man served as Prefect of the Legion, the third highest ranking position of a legion behind the Legatus, aka the Legionary Commander, and the Senior Tribune, a position that was essentially a political stepping stone for a young soldier to get to the Senate. Most soldiers serving as Prefect were in their 50s, another marker of where in Arturius' life we might be at. Because of his advanced age, it's highly unlikely that Arturius fought in any actual battles in Britain. However, his time in Britain was not entirely spent overseeing fort maintenance and food supply management, as was his position's role. 
Arturius's final military achievement on his tomb is that of Dux Legionum Trium Britannicimierum, which I'm saying slowly because it's even a mouthful set at half speed. Dux Legionum refers to a temporary title referring to an officer in a legion acting in position higher than their usual rank. The word dux is also how we get the modern English word duke. The trium Britannicimierum in Arturius's title refers to the fact that at some point he commanded all three legions that were stationed in Britain. So what great expedition did Arturius lead as Dux Legionum? Well, that's where things get a bit confusing. Arturius's sarcophagus is almost 2,000 years old, so a lot of what's written on it is either worn away or just completely missing. The fact that we know more or less what it's set up until this point is fairly impressive. However, the missing part of the next section has fueled a few distinct theories, all of which drastically change Arturius's story. The reading on his tomb at this point is adversus arm dot 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 s. As I said, there was a bit more wear and tear on the tomb before this part, but we could usually tell what it meant because we knew the names of military ranks, legions, and geographical locations. Adversus is the Latin word for against, here meaning fighting against. The arm-s section, however, could mean several different things. The first theory is that it is Amoricanos, referring to the people of Armorica, a location historically placed in northwest France. As he was stationed in Britain, this isn't too far of a leap. He just crosses the English Channel and helps put down a group of Armoricanos. However, Armorica was a relatively peaceful nation at this time. There isn't any evidence of them causing trouble, or other tribes in the area allying themselves with the Armoricanos against Rome, so it's probably unlikely that this was the case. The next theory for Arm-S is Armenios, meaning against the Armenians. Armenia was the location of several Roman campaigns throughout the 2nd and 3rd centuries, so there's a bit more historical basis for this translation over Armoricanos. Now if this is the case, that means Arturius led three legions from Britain all the way across Europe into Armenia. That is absolutely wild, but it would definitely be one for the history books something that you would definitely think could inspire a legendary figure. However, again, Rome didn't actually fight the Armenians in Armenia. They fought the Parthians in Armenia to free the Armenians from the Eastern Empire. This leads us to the final theory. Instead of arm-s referring to an ethnic group, some historians instead suggest the word is armatos, Latin for armed men. It's a very basic solution, but this could then be used to refer to any armed conflict within Roman Britain. At this time in history, Britain was rife with conflict. You had the local Britons, once again Britain with an O-N, as well as the tribes from Scotland, mainly the Caledonian people. During their raids, the Caledonians were said to have destroyed half of the Sixth Legion Victrix. There were also several rebellions from different members of the three Roman legions in Britain. With all of these conflicts, a simple fill-in of Armatos actually suits Arturius' story pretty well. 
if he acted as Dux Legionum during such a tumultuous time and actually succeeded in bringing about some semblance of peace, this could make him a local hero in the eyes of the Britons. After Britain, Arturius retired into a life of politics where he became governor of Liburnia, a Roman province encompassing parts of modern-day Croatia. It is usually hypothesized that Arturius was originally from Liburnia, or at least Dalmatia, still part of Croatia under Rome. He then passed away at some point, both age and year unknown, and was buried along the Dalmatian coast, which unfortunately is not a seaside habitat of spotted dogs. I know, tragic. So with all of his life now laid out for you, let's go into why Lucius Arturius Castus is theorized as being the basis for King Arthur. One of the most obvious reasons is his family name, Arturius. Yeah, this is a reason why a lot of people flock to Arturius as the basis. There's also the major issue of etymologists being split on the origin of the name Arthur. There are two camps for the origin of the name, the Latin camp and the Celtic camp. The Latin camp is exactly what I just pointed out. There's the Latin family name Arturius. Had a bit of Welsh magic and you get the name Arthur. The Celtic camp suggests that the name Arthur came from the Celtic name Arthurijos, meaning Bear King or Warrior King. We already know that this is the basis for the Irish name Archery, which could in turn have crossed the Irish Sea into historical Britain. There are others who theorize, however, that the name came to the Irish from the Romans. This theory goes along the lines that King Arthur's name had a Latin origin. Due to the awe and reverence the Welsh had for Arthur, they did not name their children Arthur. But then the Irish came along without that reverie and thought, oh, that's a nice name, we'll take it. Moving on to the next theory behind Arturius being the basis for Arthur. Arturius's highest position within the Roman military was during his time in Britain. If he was in fact, as I had mentioned earlier, placed into a position of power in order to quell rebellion and dissent in Britain, therefore bringing peace, he could have been seen as a hero. If stories about Arturius continued to be circulated for the next several centuries, the Britons could have devised a hero based on the legendary figure who they hoped would come to their aid against the invading Saxons. Finally, there's some people who have latched onto that Arturius fighting in Armenia theory who go as far as saying the three Roman legions are a prototype of the Knights of the Round Table. Not exactly as glamorous as Sir Galahad or Sir Lancelot fighting dragons and saving princesses, but if that theory were somehow true, would be an interesting origin story nonetheless. Unless time machines become a thing, we'll never know for sure if King Arthur was a real person, or at the very least, who the Britons used as a basis for him. I know I spent all this episode making an argument for Lucius Arturius Castus, but do remember that most Arthurian scholars and historians do not consider him a legitimate choice. There will be more King Arthur episodes in the future. If not to learn about actual historical figures who may have been the basis of the king, then just a chance for me to read stories from Arthurian legend. Speaking of which, if you like hearing stories like that, try checking out my other show, Bedtime From Abroad. It's only available on the YouTube channel and fills the off week between episodes of Royally Screwed. 
If you have any other legendary figures who may have historical basis that you want me to cover, please let me know. Episodes like this are pretty fun to do. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter for more info about each episode. As I said last episode, this marks the end of what I guess is season one of the show. It'll be a few weeks before we come back, but now's a perfect time to share the show so people can catch up from the beginning. The show is still just a hobby, not my job, so I need time to sit back and relax as well as do more research for future episodes and scripts. I'll try my best not to leave you completely alone during the break, and I'll make sure any announcements are posted here so you know when the show is coming back. When we do return, we're going back to Rome to explore a member of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Instead of starting at the beginning, I'm actually skipping almost all the way to the end. We're going to explore one of the most chaotic moments of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, the Great Fire of Rome during the reign of Emperor Nero. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. (laughs) 